G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Hello guys and thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Fly Fishers podcast. In the Fly Fisher corner today we're joined by Forbes Linderman and Peter Panopoulos and myself Andrew Fuller and our special guest for today is none other than Tom Jarman. Uh, Tom is obviously a, a phenomenal fisherman with a bit of a profile if you haven't heard from him or of him, you've probably been living under a rock or something, but Tom, tell us a bit about yourself uh, for those that maybe don't know who you are. Uh, put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, essentially, uh, you, most people would probably know me as a fly fishing guide, uh, competition angler in Australia, uh, and more recently, um, some of my writing in Fly Life magazine, and then as well... Um, uh, YouTube channel, so where I produce some videos to try and help people catch more fish and look through a range of techniques. So that's probably yeah my deal. Cool, and you get a bit of a kick out of teaching people and yeah, it's um, you really enjoy. It's a different aspect to like fishing. You get I think everyone who's you know tried to bring someone into the sport who's watched you know a mate had taken a mate on the water and watched them catch their first fish or improve. They everyone gets a kick out of it. It's a different experience and it's really yeah it's really enjoyable. So can we can we take it back a step to when you started fishing? Yeah, so I uh, started tr- well we so I actually grew up, moved our family moved to the UK when I was 2. Yeah. So started going to like the local stillwater in Surrey with my dad, which was called Sign Park. I think it's Aubrey Estate uh yeah, like fly fishing area sort of thing. And it's like a little spring creaky lake and uh ever since I was like 4 I used to follow dad down to the um, to the fishery on it like a Sunday and, and go and watch him fly fish and then came back to Australia in the year 2000 and the uh, it was kind of the drought and the UK is very heavily still water focused so dad started going down to Tasmania fly fishing and then I would go down. We first got guided by Neil Gross in 2001 together um, and it just kind of flowed on from then. Um, and then it was, so once I finished school, actually through school I started competing when I was 15 or 16. So I started competition fishing back then. And then I started working, actually worked at the Fly Fish for those that didn't know, in <laughs> when I was 19 or yeah. 20, it was 19 or 20. Yeah, you definitely finished school when you started. With I'd finished yeah. school and then when I was 21, that was when I got off my pea plates, I was able to start guiding. So I started guiding uh, for Christopher Vasano at Rainbow Lodge in Tasmania. So that was in 2014. Yeah. It was when my guiding started down there. So, yeah. Did you have equal keenness as your old man when you were fishing with him back then? Was it always, like, from the get-go, was, it was like, oh, geez, you know, Tom's more keen than I am now. Is that what David was maybe thinking at the time? Or I don't know. Um, it's weird because I've got a brother who doesn't, fish or he's only just started fishing recently so he didn't show that intense interest at the start but now it's kind of like it has um i don't know there's just mm. something like when we moved back i would just love you know flathead fishing in port phillip bay anything yeah. fishing and you know the more i've like now working in the industry now that like fly fishing is so much of my work it's like i'm still looking for 
fly fishing as a hobby. So I find myself doing more and more brim fishing and, you know, Murray Cod fishing with lures even and, like, you know, exploring other areas because it's just, you know, anything fishing is yeah. amazing. And it all helps. It's amazing how much you learn from doing any form of fishing, how you can apply that back to your fly fishing and it makes you a better yeah. angler and makes yeah. you think. So For yeah. sure. Yeah. And and what was it sort of, I suppose, in those early days and those things, you know, you're saying any fishing is good fishing and I completely agree with that. What is it about fishing that keeps bringing you back and, and what is it that sort of spurred that passion in the early in the early phases and stages of your career and sort of uh, even just it as a, when it was just a hobby? I think I'm just going to roll off a bunch of cliches. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. But the great outdoors yeah, and totally. the thrill of the catch. And <laughs> um, I think I reckon the best part about fishing and any sort of fishing is the take, the bite. Yeah. Like you're always looking for that bite. Um, whether it's, you know, like that fish coming up and eating your dry or if you're nymphing, just seeing your dry go under. It's that moment of this is it. And then you get that that massive endorphin rush mm-hmm. and then you land the fish and that's great and, you you know, you really enjoy that and then you you reset and you're like, oh, I need another bite. Yeah. And it's like my life's just become looking for the next bite. Chasing, <laughs> yeah. chasing the next yeah, yeah, totally. No, no, no. I think that's, yeah. You see that in people fishing too, you know, like they'll be landing a fish and they're still looking but where are they going to cast yeah, next? Where, where it's the like they just want to get it in. Yeah, and, right? totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. for sure. It's uh, good. So uh, Neil Gross, he was one of the the earlier guys to guide you, and and then you got guided by Chris Bassano as well. Yeah, yeah. Chris yeah. took over uh, yeah. when he he bought uh, Rainbow Lodge down there. Oh, of course. From yeah, yeah from yeah, Neil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also um, Mick Winterden was back in the day as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, uh, there were so many Lane Olding, mm. um, yeah, heaps of people. And then I remember when um, through when I was getting guided down in Tassie uh, by Christopher and those guys, um, he was like, you should probably think about comp fishing. It's right up your alley. Um, and at that stage, he introduced me to Royce Baxter, Vern Barbie, Craig Coltman, yeah. um, some familiar Victorian fly fishing names. Um, and they kind of helped me. So I essentially just got – I was so lucky to get, you know, yeah. a, leg, a leg up and help by everyone. So they were pretty influential and kind of took you under their wing in a way, did they? Yeah, just supportive more than anything. Yep. You need someone – you need people to just keep encouraging you because yep. um, you need to stay motivated and mm. sometimes, yeah. And no doubt they were pretty happy to have someone hungry to learn too yeah. and listen. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, so – yeah. And then, like, that's when I joined uh, the Ballarat Fly Fishers Club even – yeah. Living in Melbourne. Ironically, now I live out towards Ballarat that way. Um, but, yeah, I was living in Melbourne and as a member of the Ballarat Fly Fishers Club. Yeah. And they were a great club and super supportive of, you know, all endeavours and, yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. No, is they that, are a great club. Yeah. Is that the way to get fully involved, join a club, you think? I think clubs definitely help, yeah. Um, sense of community is super important, I think. And you see it in, you know, all areas of uh, not just fishing, you know, any, anywhere essentially like sporting clubs and I think the community is really important. Luckily nowadays you can be a part of, you know, like an online community. You can get involved with people um, and there's other avenues, uh, whereas in the old days it was just clubs and maybe that's why, you know, clubs have died off a little in their popularity but they've still got heaps of value and I think if you're looking for, you know, people to actually meet up, fish with, learn, like literally every fly club in Victoria would have that one experienced guy that's happy to help and there would be way more in each club, but you know you're definitely going to find someone that you can get along with, and you can go out and fish with and learn and develop your skills. Yeah, yeah, 
It's an experience-based past, pastime, isn't it? Like you can read all the books and watch all the videos in the world, but unless you've got someone to actually show you, yeah, it's, it's very different, isn't it? You kind of need that. So it I can see. Makes a world well, of difference. Yeah. Although I have watched your top five Victorian dry fly videos probably 500 <laughs> times, especially in the early days. I think such a fanboy. I was such a fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting all black celebrity coming in. Yeah. Uh, um, it is a pretty pretty small lunchbox though isn't it Tommy like you know when you look at fly fishing in general and the industry as a whole like you know do you feel like it's it's growing as a as a as an industry and that kind of recognition of people that are very good at it and gear development do you think it's all heading in the right direction are you happy with how it's all going um yeah I think it's it's both growing but it's also um it's like with technology and everything, it's like the sport in Australia, I think, is definitely growing. But it's also like suddenly you have access to people internationally, which back in like, you know, this in my, when my dad was starting, like back in the 80s and 90s, you didn't have that fluidity between, you know, people in Australia and mm-hmm. like New Zealand, America, the UK. It wasn't as easy. You know, you could read a book, you could read an article. But now you almost feel like you know them. You know, you can watch a video, you can fly over there for, you know, not a ridiculous amount and... So I feel like the information now flows between countries a lot more and the industry as a whole feels bigger because we're all kind of connected now. Mm. Like we were just talking before we came online, like how this uh, coming winter I'm heading over to fish with some people overseas and, and you end up building friends, you know, abroad to kind of learn from and build off and then bring that stuff back to your country to hopefully benefit everyone, yeah. No doubt some great connections in a fishing sense too, right? Like they'd get you onto good water and you'd have some... Some great fun. Totally. It's like anything with, um, you know, treating the farm as well. And, you know, if you look after the farmers, they'll introduce you to another landowner who has, a you know, access to another piece of water. Like, yeah, yeah I think the more you go out of your way to, you know, network and, and do the right thing, people really like that and are happy to support you in doing that. And it just builds and builds like that. Yeah. yeah sure. So you end up with, like, friends of friends who you end up fishing with and staying with. And, like, the classic for me was in... Uh, after the World Championships in 2016 in Colorado, I ended up staying with one of our guides for like a week after the whole event, staying with his yeah at his house in Boulder, and you just go God, how did how did that happen? Yeah, but it just does happen. Yeah, and it seems to be you know in this sort of sport that that does happen. It yeah. does, and yeah, not even at the elite level. It's kind of it, everyone's the same like that, you know. I think yeah. uh, maybe it's got something to do with well, I guess what Jim Allen was talking about that all walks of life fly fish there's no and those sorts of connections you can get from all walks of life can really uh be i guess advantageous in a way it's probably the wrong way to look at it because really what they are is great relationships but they're they're relationships that can give you some great experiences Mm -hmm. um so obviously the uh you know the competition thing was there a point do you think where numbers and catching a lot of fish started to creep in or is it always sort of been a thing I guess it's probably always a thing in all of us, actually. I think it's <laughs> reading inherent, that. Out. It's inherently. I think fishing is an inherently competitive thing. Mm. You know, people. Uh, we said we weren't going to go down the comp rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> you know, people uh, say, "Look, I don't think competition fishing's for me," and it probably isn't. But you know, everyone's competitive with you know their bat, their mate when they're fishing on the river. Um, I know, like the first time I caught more fish than my dad, it was like, yes done it <laughs> i think everyone gets that point but um i don't know i the numbers 
it doesn't the numbers aren't about numbers i think it's just about the enjoyment and mm. it's amazing how you know you re- you do remember most they don't blur they kind of blur but you still remember like each one it's not about the numbers it's about how you caught them and and it's the enjoyment of being able to you know maximize your water yeah and um yeah i, I feel it's i don't know it's hard to it's the only measure at the end of the day isn't it of success Yes, but then it's relative to what water you're on. Yeah. You know, like if you're fishing uh, the Yarra River under Queen Street Bridge, you know, naturally you can't do as well as a dude up in Warburton. So mm. I think you can't really measure it off numbers. I think you need to measure it off what you're out there to achieve. Um, and whatever that is, that's absolutely fine. Mm. And, like, I know the hardest thing for me practising, um, or even when you're filming a video, you're trying to, you know, highlight something, you may forego fish in a certain sort of water and walk past them because you know you're not set up and you're not able to fish at them. So numbers aren't a good reflection because you weren't there to try and catch every fish. You're there to catch them in a certain way and, you know, maybe try something new, try a new fly, work on something. So I think that's kind of the fun part, more so than the numbers. Like, mm. yeah. So you, you're definitely still getting a kick out of sort of, I suppose, not necessarily just how many you're catching, but the way that you are catching and yeah. targeting those oh, fish. Yeah, and yeah. all of us sitting at the table, we would have that moment where it actually happened to me on the Howquart two days ago when you're standing in front, you've got a fish in front of you for like five minutes and you're watching him rise and you throw this fly at him and he looks at it and refuses it and you're like, ah. Oh. And <laughs> then you like you rig. change flies, you change rig and then you tie something on and you get him to eat and you're like, yes, I did it. Yeah. And then the reality is you could have spent that, 15 minutes or half an hour you spent on that one fish, you could have spent that 15 minutes up in a run nymphing yeah. Yeah. where there are a lot more fish. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that we choose to do that, we choose to get sucked in by that one fish in the pool, kind of shows that it's not always about the numbers, it's about the way you catch them and that enjoyment. I love, love to hear that. It's <laughs> good, isn't that's it? So yeah. good. That is so refreshing <laughs> to hear. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. I got him though. I got him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got him on a uh, like a little plume tip, like a size eighteen plume tip with a quill body. Oh, beautiful! So that's yeah, yeah. So and you remember that, and you're like, I know, you know. Next time I go to the Hauqua, I'll be pulling in there, and I'll be like, okay, I'll be looking at my flies or something before the day, and I'll go, oh, I remember. I've got a plume tip. It's like I remember that was the fish that um, that caught that fish down there, Mm -hmm. and that stays with you. And in those waterways, do you find that if you were to be back on the Hauka, you had this picky fish, mm. if you tied that on, do you think there's a good chance that it would work again? Um, or do you think it's more of a just-on-the-day thing? I think it's a situational thing. Mm-hmm. I think that fish ate not as much because of the fly I had on, but the position of my body and the way I chose to fish at him. Mm-hmm. I think that was more important than the actual fly. But um, with that, with having caught that fish on that fly, you would naturally go back there, pull that fly out and be yeah. like, I've got this. The, like, the yeah, confidence. I've pattern. got this. Yeah, yeah, I have the silver bullet here. Yeah. <laughs> when it's not actually the silver bullet, but the fact that you think it's the silver bullet, it gives you that edge. The confidence. Yeah, fly. totally. Yeah. And you see that in all sports. You know, yeah. you see that in all athletes. Um, you know, some, something happens and they just switch on and they're like, I reckon we've got this, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fishing with confidence is That's huge. Yeah, yeah. So catch fit, Which catch is probably fish. a good way to lead into the, you know, the topic of flies competition anglers in general and in and fly fishers in general i guess they are very particular about fly pattern uh the weight of beads uh the colors all that kind of thing um what is it that like is it just as you've just said the confidence in that particular fly that puts it in a box and makes it competition ready 
or or is there something more to to fly selection? Do you think like how well tested are they? What makes a fly competition ready? Um, confidence is a big thing. I think um, representative rather than imitative is a better way to be because realistically you can't imitate everything. And yeah. I mean, how many people have caught a fish on a royal wolf and you can't say that imitates anything? <laughs> yeah. So I think... Uh, Actually, that's untrue. We had a big royal wolf hatch on the taggity yesterday. <laughs> oh, yeah. Huge, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the red bellies on them was yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, from my um, so I think... Um, it's as, it's more about having this is actually this is a shameless fly. I, my literally my last article in Fly Life magazine covered this exact topic, mm-hmm. talking about being prepared and having a system and having a range of flies that equips you to fish a range of water types. Um, because uh, some people might go, oh you yeah this is my favourite fly. You have to use this fly, and it might be like you know a very small little spent spinnery kind of you know spent midge thing, which is perfect for fishing say flat like a big flat pool on the Golden or, or something like that. But if you're fishing, uh, say, the upper Rubicon or you're fishing in bouldery, pockety water, that fly is not really going to help you there because it's the wrong fly for the wrong water. Mm-hmm. It doesn't – it's not probably not large enough. It's hard for you to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it requires you to fish quite fine tibet to get it to drift really nicely. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not the fly for big bouldery pocket water. You're probably far better off with, you know – uh, a, a caddisy style pattern, you know, like a CDC caddis, elk hair caddis, deer hair caddis, something like that that'll ride nice and highly. You have confidence, you can see how well the drift is. If you're fishing a super tiny fly there, one, we may just never see it, it may get pulled under, but yeah. you can't see the quality of your drift and the fish up there probably aren't looking for that like they would be on that flat pool on the Golden. So I think if you have, uh, as far, back to the question of being ready with your flies, I think having the right flies for the right situation is is the key. And there are a lot of flies that overlap and serve the same purpose um, and will do the same thing in the same sorts of water types. It's about having the flies, you know, having a small nymph for shallow water with a light bead, you know, having like that bomb to get down deep in that deep hole. It's about having that dry that will ride high in that bubbly water, having that dry which has a sight on it. So if you're fishing through in and out of mottled light, you have that fly that you can see throughout the majority of the drift. Um, and then having, you know, your small stuff for those tough, you know, late season fish sipping blueing dollars on the Goulburn or something like that. So I think it's about having a fly for each situation and then having absolute confidence in it, and that is the key essentially. Yep. Yeah. Does so that answer that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great answer. Yeah. yeah. How many flies would you read, like, patterns and sizes? Do you, have you ever done a count-up of, like... No, they're in the car, so I'll, I can bring them in after this. No, no, I'm just interested as to how many you might have narrowed it down to, like... Or do you still have a few rogue ones in there that you don't... They don't yeah. get fished. <laughs> you, you always have the rogue ones, and then you have the sentimental ones that yeah. don't have a role to play, but they're still in there. I think, realistically, I... It, uh, this is a great. There was a one of a good influence for me was a guy called Yannick Riviera. Mm-hmm. He was a French angler, um, a French competition angler, um, and he came over and did some clinics in Australia. And he said, "This is talking about nymphing." He said, "You only need four sorts of flies. You need, uh, and in color, you need a light fly and a dark fly, and then you also need a scruffy fly and a slim fly. They are your four, you know, styles of flies, and within them." You have a multitude of options, but they're essentially all going to serve the same purpose. So that's a very similar way of – it's a very brief way of saying exactly what I was saying before yeah. in a long convoluted way. Yeah. Um, so essentially with that, you could – let's say for a nymph, you may only need – I don't 
know how my math is going to be bad, but you need, let's say, a light fly that is bushy in colour, like mm-hmm. a hair's ear. Yep. You need a light fly that is quite slim. You need a dark fly that is bushy and a dark fly that is slim. It could be as simple as that. Mm. Um, but like everything, fly fishing is a sport where you can take it as far as you want or you don't need to take it very far because yeah. there are so many reliable patterns that you guys in the store here could be like, hey, you tie this on and you throw it up in a bubbly run you know, on the Rubicon and, like, you'll get some chances. Don't you worry about that. So mm. it's about finding that balance, I think. Yeah, yeah. cool. And bead colour obviously plays into that too, right? Bead colour is a massive part of it because I think um, I've holding, I've been picking some beads out to buy here, but um, looking at these beads here... All the colours of the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, all the funky <laughs> colours. Um, you know, like, if we take a nymph, if, you, if I was to hold up a fly box here and I was to step back two metres and I have like a wall of beads, uh, sorry, flies, and I was to say, okay, I'm going to close your eyes, open your eyes, look at my fly box, and what is the first thing that catches your eye? Mm-hmm. Probably everyone's going to be like, oh, the bead, you know, the flash of that silver or mm-hmm. yeah. that pink bead or that copper bead. So you imagine if you're nymphing now and your fly's coming down a fast run, what's the first thing that a fish may register? Could be the bead, could be the silhouette of the bushy body, which is very important in dirty water or dark, you know, early in the morning. But... Um, you know, the bead plays a very big role in that. So I think having a range of bead colours is very important. Copper, silver, gold are the absolute classics. Metallic pink's great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, orange, like painted orange, very good late and early in the season as well. So, yeah. Cool. Um, maybe, yeah, like I'm thinking, as far as authorities on Euronymphing, there's few bikes that we could have in the room that would compare in level of experience to you. Just give us, for those listeners that I guess may not know what Euronymphing is or, or short-line nymphing techniques are, what, what is it? What's your definition of it and how, how is it? Like, just the basics. It's fly fishing. The most controversial moment of the podcast. <laughs> um, Euronymphing is a very simple and logical way uh, to fish fly to get a good drift with a nymph essentially um one of the biggest things about rivers um is that the water on the top of the river like let's say we're standing in the middle of a run um i'm going off topic again here's a good this is a great example from uh devon olsen and lance eagles egan's uh modern nymphing dvd to highlight how current in a river behaves they go into the middle of this run and it's about waist deep and they take a garden stake which has a whole bunch of ribbons running off it. They have a ribbon right at the top, they have a couple of ribbons in the middle, and then a few ribbons right close to the bottom. And they stick it in the middle of the run and film it underwater. And what you see is that the ribbon on top is moving flat out. It's like moving at the pace of the current you physically see when you're looking at the water. And the deeper you go, the slower that current is. And then when you get to the bottom, there is very little current, and it's moving very slowly. And essentially that's because the rocks upstream... Uh, variable and of all different sizes and as water hits them the current kind of rolls over and it creates soft pockets and slower water as you get deeper in the water column so let's look at that's a great example to show you how the river and the water behaves so now let's imagine you want to fish that run and you're fishing a dry fly or an indicator like a yarn indicator or a thingamabobber and then you have a nymph on below it you make the cast up the river no matter how like no matter what depth you can get your nymph to the pace and the, the pace of the drift of that nymph will always be dictated by your indicator or your dry, which is tethered to the surface film. So that rig will always drift at the same pace as the, your dry, essentially what's tethered to the surface film. So where urine nymphing is so ingenious is 
that it utilises an indicator that is not tethered to the surface film. And that is a bicolour indicator, like a coloured fluorescent bit of line. So what uranymphing is, is using a very light leader, using light tippet and an indicator that is above the water, so you're tight line to it. It's like how if you were just high sticking uh, on a river, fishing a dry fly, keeping your line up off the water. You're essentially making the cast, your nymph's getting down to depth, and you're keeping tight and making sure you're lifting your indicator off the water so you're not tethered to the surface film. So you can achieve a drift that is more uh, like more representative of the current where your fly is actually in. Now, we can never truly achieve a drift like an actual nymph would, but the closer we can get to the drift of the speed of the current, the better. So essentially, the lighter the fly, the lighter fly, the person who gets the lightest fly the deepest will achieve the best drifts because it'll be more representative to the current and the naturals around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that kind of uh, give it an example? It does. Yeah, it no, does. that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't want to go into more detail on it, but I will. It's, um, very, it's, very, it's, <laughs> it's very daunting. It yeah. sounds one complicated. Yeah. And it that's does, the one yeah. thing. And um, it's really simple. The gear is really simple. Like you don't need to overcomplicate it. A lot of people are like, oh, is that it? And you're mm. like, yeah, mm. what, what were you trying to do before? <laughs> and they're like, I don't know. I was doing this. And you go, look, it's very like you're trying to achieve a very few simple things and then like any sport it's the person who is very successful is the person who does the simple thing really well mm. and urine is just a very simple logical way to fish um and i will point out people get very hung up on urine nymphing and it's really good in the right water type now people go oh well why wouldn't you just urine nymph all the time mm. um if that's you know you can get a fly under the water to drift at the speed of the current around it and have nothing tethered to the surface the reality is well you can't cast that far with it because we, we're not go-go gadget arms. We don't have the world's longest arm or world's longest rod. So realistically, um, you're limited in how far you can cast. But um, there's other really good ways. Like sometimes you may not be able to get close to the fish. So fishing nymph below dry is a better option because the benefits of staying away from the fish outweighs the quality of your drift of your nymph. Mm. But also, if you're in a big, long, flat pool, um, the length of drift... Um, and the not tethered factor of the drift can be really good because when you're urinymphing, you're tight. Like there's a reason people call it tight line nymphing. So if you're fishing nymph below dry, you can actually free your drift up a bit and it changes the drift. So that's really good as well. Um, so it's a very important technique in that big, fast, bouldery water where you need to punch your nymph down deep quickly and not get caught up with that current on the surface. But when you don't need to do that, Nymph under dry is great because the quality and length of your drift is really good too. Mm-hmm. So, um, and particularly in Australia, in some water as well, we don't have the gradient of other areas of the world. So there's a lot of water that you don't need a urinymph in. But if you're fishing in high water early in the season, you're probably going to want to do it. Yeah. So are you carrying two rods when you're fishing rivers? Yeah, mostly. Yeah. Or mostly you can go, I'm going to fish like this section of water and... You can look at it and go, well, I'm going to nymph that. I'm going to nymph under dry that. So you can do it that way. Um, How do you feel about fishing the same piece of water two different ways? Will you like fish dry dropper through it and then go, right, that didn't get a result. I'm going to totally. nymph through it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, I do that in my video on the Hauka River that will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah. We'll definitely be tuning um, into that. Yeah. yeah, 100%. And it's amazing how you catch different fish. It's like um, it's like how people are like oh what fly do they want and I always say to people you got to think of like trout are all in it's like the life of Brian quote it's like we're all individuals like mm. 
they're not all going to eat the same pattern. They're not all going to eat the same drift. They're not all going to eat the same bead color. So remembering that's really important. Yeah. Like if you're fishing on a river and you're wading up on the Stevenson, you see a guy and you're like, ah, oh. you're like, ah, oh, he's one of those, you're an infing dudes. Ah, oh, this is <laughs> terrible. It's like, no, that's okay. Maybe fish a dry fly in the shallow water on the edge or fish a nymph below dry and achieve a different drift and you'll catch different fish to him because he's not fishing them at mm. them. He can't fish the pools as effectively as you can. So, you know, there's definitely, yeah, a lot of merit in what you said then. And in a small stream situation in your experience, if someone's fished through in a particular method and then you come through, does it need a bit of time to reset and get the fish actively feeding again? Or comes back to, I think, that the fish are all individuals. Sure, it might take one fish a day. He could be really moody and cranky. But there are some fish that'll just be like, oh, what was that? And he slides out of the way and then he's like, oh, there's a really good spot to be sitting in the mm. middle of the run. There's no one there. I'm going to slide into it. And then he's back there within five minutes. Um, the one thing competition fishing has showed me is just how quickly they do reset. Mm. Like how you can fish through in a comp, you're allocated a section of like a hundred meter section of water to fish in a few hours. And you'll fish through that within your first hour and you have to refish it. And sometimes you catch more fish the second time through than the first, which is just so different to what anyone would expect. Mm. But there are so many factors that come into it, you know, like water temperature, time of day, light, you know, are the fish pulling out of the pools and setting up in the runs? Like there's all of those factors in there. So fishing behind someone, it's not ideal, but it's definitely... Not a deal breaker. Yeah, no, no, nowhere near a deal breaker. It's yeah. absolutely fine. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's... It's an, probably a not. I would say it's a non-issue. Yeah, I think the mental part of it is the biggest thing for mm -hmm. people because, like we were saying, confidence is key. Confidence is like one of the most important things. So if you're uncomfortable with that, then maybe you may need to fish somewhere else because you won't fish it as well as you would normally if yeah. you were confident in there. And but how often have you been like? Have you the same thing happened? And you fished up a section of water. And you're catching fish and you're feeling really good. You jump out of the river and there's a guy walking back towards you. <laughs> and you're like, oh, where, where were you fishing? He's like, I just fished through there. It's like, did you catch any in there? And he's like, yeah, I got a couple there. And you go, I got a couple there. <laughs> <laughs> so it it's funny. Happen. Yeah, that has probably happened to a lot of us. And we go, you know, we've unknowingly fished behind someone and done really well as well. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's quite funny. <laughs> I'm usually the guy that turns around. And I say, oh, did you catch any fish in there? And he goes, yeah, I got a few. And I said, I got none. No. <laughs> Damn you, <laughs> bugger. <laughs> Floating your flies down the exact same drift lines he was. Now on it. Now on it. Um, come on, guys. Yeah, Forbes. You know, you've Fire got up, a wealth mate. of information here. Bloody <laughs> hell. Keep going. Um, so you, I guess you're own nymphing. There's, there's other techniques that are becoming, uh, I guess, the Profiles growing, uh, like lock style fishing, probably has been around a little bit longer than Euro nymphing, but maybe give us a bit of an, an introduction to that. Lake fishing, lock style fishing. Um, it's a complicated. What is lock style fishing? What is lock I don't. Style? I'm not sure. Even I understand. No, what I don't think a lot of people. Lock style fishing is could almost be defined. I'm gonna, and some people will be like, he got the definition wrong, and <laughs> <laughs> that's part of it. But lock style fishing, for a start, is from a boat, from a drifting boat. So you're typically fishing out of the front of a drifting boat. Um, and typically it was done in like the United Kingdom, um, an island, and so where you're fishing from a, a drifting boat, you've got, say, a floating line or maybe, um, you know, a very slow intermediate sinking line like a Kelly Green, which is like a lock styling line, and you're fishing a team of traditional flies through the film um, and you're retrieving them. You could be lock styling a team of dries, which is cast, strip, 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 and then dibble them. The dibble is a really important part of the cast, which is like a hang. It's where you 
lift your rod and then you use that wind to catch your line and then you just kind of sweep your flies and they kind of dibble across the surface. Really good way of covering and combing a lot of water and, and the fish over there are quite opportunistic so the fish just kind of climb all over the flies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of more broadly been lockstyle fishing has been... Uh, it's just kind of turned into just if you're fishing a lake, you're lockstyle fishing. Um, it seems that way because you could have a team of woolly buggers or you could have like a... Yeah, I think... A sedge hog at the top and, you know... Yeah, totally. And yeah, like I'll definitely fish sometimes, you know, like um, if you're in Tassie, you might have like a small beaded dams or a streamer on the point. You'll have a traditional fly on the middle, like a claret dabbler maybe, and then you'll have, a, you know, like a like you said, a sedge hog on the top, which acts as your bob fly. Your bob fly in lockstyle fishing is your top dropper. Um, which kind of creates that wake and is super important to the dibble to move that water. Uh, like a claret bumble or some other sort of bumble is a really good fly for that. Just a big bushy thing that'll, you know, really create a nice wake as you dibble your flies across the top and like lead them through there. Yeah. So, yeah. So if I've got two woolly buggers on and I'm just flogging wets out of a boat, is that lock style fishing? That would be defined in like the comp world and probably that would be called pulling. Yeah. So pulling is essentially the technique which encompasses. Casting, retrieving flies. You could be pulling blobs. You could be pulling traditional wet flies. Like lock style fishing is typically moving from drifting boat, fishing quite short, really focusing on those flies being high in the water, the right. dibble, the hang, um, the first few strips quite early because the fish are up and about. Okay. Um, yeah, you could br- you could almost break down, um, uh, you know, like our lake fishing over here into a few core techniques. You've got pulling, which is retrieving a team of flies. You've got nymphing, which is fishing very slowly with a team of nymphs, or you've got dry fly fishing, which is oh no, I've got a fourth one. You've got dry fly fishing, which is casting out a team of dries and either animating them, drawing them across the top, maybe if it's cloudy, leaving them static if it's bright. Uh, and then we've also got fishing the bung. If you're in Europe, you bung fishing is fishing beneath an indicator, um, oh, so that's okay. called fishing the bung. Yeah, the Jim Allen dry the, yeah, fly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's been bunging his whole life. He has <laughs> the inventor. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like nymph below dry. Literally, that is in a lake. Yeah, mm-hmm. fishing a static nymph or mm-hmm. a static woolly bugger or a static bloodworm or something like that. Yeah. And why would you use an indicator over putting it under a dry fly in lake fishing? Um, well, my indicators have hooks on them, <laughs> so it's the kind of the same thing. Fish yeah. launch and eat them, but mm-hmm. um they just give you better take detection ultimately. Like it's amazing how often the function of a fish eating a static fly under an indicator, the indicator doesn't need to go under for you to know that a fish has eaten it. So if you're fishing a two-tone indicator, mm. like you've, you know, or your your thing spins or something like that, you've got to strike because that's a fish picking it up. Like we always forget like on a river or even on a lake, the function of like the fish current in a river when a fish eats your nymph under dry, the fish actually has to swim off with it or go down, or the current has to pull it downstream, which sucks it under. In a lake, if the fish is at the same level as your fly and he eats it and he just sits there, we've all just seen a fish open its mouth and just eat a stick caddis and just sit there, and you're kind of like, of course your indicator's not going to yeah. go under. Yeah, so, how would you get a detection? So I think indicator never goes down. Yeah, by having a visible indicator where you can discern movement like that is is beneficial. So yeah. it's sort of in the subtlety of that movement of the yeah. indicator. Yeah. yeah, and in a big wind and stuff, you know, like... If the wind is blowing, you're naturally going to get some drift with your indicator or your dry through the current of the lake, which is going to pull it down when a fish eats it. And sometimes he'll just eat it and keep cruising, and it goes under that way. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, um, but I don't, I don't fish that way heaps here. Yeah, it's too slow for me. What, yeah. what, what's your favourite way to fish? Oh, it's nymph under dry on a river, one hundred percent. There's like, I, my heart stops every time you that dry goes under, and you lift. There's like that moment where you're like. 
is it a rock? Is it yeah. a fish? Yeah. Am I seeing things? Yeah. Am I looking yeah. at a bubble? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. happens so quickly. Oh, it's going. yeah, it's that split moment when the dry goes under and you react that is just like and exhilarating. Yeah. Totally, yeah. I think that's the most enjoyable um, form of fishing. Yeah, everyone thinks I'm a nymphing guy. Everyone thinks I'm a euro-nymphing guy, but um, yeah, I like euro-nymphing in certain water types, and in other water types, it kind of bores me. But at the yeah. same time, you do what you got to do. And I think you've done a lot to publicise Euronymphing and teach people how to Euronymph because of that interest that is around at the moment, really. Mm. So, Were you yeah. always Euronymph in a competition? Uh, my biggest... Philo- that is a great... Input. That's a very good That's question. That's a very good yeah. question. My number one rule is um, the water type dictates how you fish. Like, mm-hmm. I won't... Sure, I ultimately will make the decision, but... If you fish the wrong technique in the wrong water, you're not really gonna ma- do. You're not gonna maximize it. You can always catch fish. There's always the exception, but um, you know the water will definitely dictate it um, how you fish. And some of my best sessions, uh, like at the World Championships in uh, in Tasmania in 2019, uh, in the fifth session, I actually came second in that session, um, dry fly fishing on the meander. Like, and that was partially that decision was because I followed a Czech guy, a French guy one of the guys in the American team, and you're just like, well, the reality, I started nymphing and they just wouldn't eat it. Mm. And you're like, well, they've just been probably caught. So yeah. being the, playing the contrarian is quite important there. So fishing a different way, like we were talking about following people, following and fishing a different way, you're fishing a different fish sort of thing. So Catch the outliers. Yeah, but then like naturally, like, yeah, some of my other good sessions have been nymphing, like in Slovakia. I won a session there just nymphing for grayling where you find a school of them and you just... Just nymph and nymph and nymph and nymph and nymph. So, Clean but on. the water, the water will tell you essentially. Yeah. Like, it can. It's almost as simple as going. How fast is that water? How deep's that water? Like, are there fish rising? Should I dry fly fish? Um, do I have to fish a lot of water? Like, or let's say, like the reason. Let's go back to um, the lake fishing for a second. Like the reason I don't like to fish under an indicator. Uh, in Victoria on a lot of our lakes. I do most of my lake fishing over winter as well because I'm not as busy then, so I can get out and fish them more myself. But the reason over winter I don't fish beneath an indicator um, on many of our lakes, when you they definitely eat it, like um, it's a very good way to, to fish and catch one, is I feel like you're not covering enough water. Yeah. So if, you're not, if there aren't that many fish and you don't necessarily know where they are or you know, you're fishing a lake that is sparsely populated you need to find your fish. So you've got to get moving. So I'm going to pull because I want to cover water and find, you know, those few aggressive fish that want to eat. It can be the same on a river. If you're fishing a river and it's one of my go-to techniques when I arrive at a new spot and you have no idea what's going on, Nymph Under Dry is a great way to get a sample of what's going on. Like, do they want to launch and eat a dry? Do they want to eat a nymph? You'll always catch, even if the water's urine-nymphing water and you're fishing a nymph below dry, you'll tend to always get something on the nymph. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a test, like you can... A little bit of an idea. Totally, yeah, Nymph Under Dry is really good for that, yeah. And then sometimes you end up... I had that on the uh, the Delatite, like the other day where I was fishing Nymph Under Dry because I just wanted to do that for fun because it's like I just love fishing that way. And then the fish were just launching and eating the dry and I'm just like, there's no way I'd fish this any other way. Like it's literally the best way to fish it, even though the water probably would arguably be good urine nymphing water, they just were looking up and they wanted to eat off the top, so... Um, and then by fishing high in the water as well, you also, it's again that balance, the time management balance thing. You're probably going to hook less sticks on the bottom. You're not going to get as stuck on stuff. So it's, it's that balance, that trade-off of, you know, what, um, 
you know, efficiency essentially. And it's the same that goes for cod fishing as well. It's like how everything overlaps. Like top watering on fly for cod is a very good way to fish for cod um, because it's a percentages thing. You're making more casts, more efficient casts. You're not getting stuck on that log. Um, you know, you're not getting your line in the current getting swept under that log. It's just very, very efficient. If you make a mistake with your cast, you can pick it up and put it back there. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's like that. It's just all about managing. Yep. It's all about efficiency. Yep. And, and, and the way that you're spending your time on the water. Yeah, totally. Yeah, unreal. You mentioned cod fishing there. Do you find yourself getting a little bored with trout? And is that part of the reason that you might want to mix it up with things like brim and cod and whatever else? No, trout are the best. They are the best, aren't they? Trout are the best. Because every you can, catch a, you can catch a trout in so many different ways. Mm. Like, mm. I'd take a 50-centimetre trout over a 50-centimetre cod any day of the week, yeah. 100%. Like, <laughs> easy peasy. Um, yeah, quite ironic because they're, you know, introduced species and I, as well. Yeah, I was <laughs> just <laughs> thinking that. It's almost un-Australian of you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think it's – you learn a lot, you know. you um, Brim fishing with soft plastics is, I think, really good for, um, you know, understanding take detection and the value of – fine line, fine braid, um, you know, take sensitivity depending on what gear you're using. If you're, you know, if you're fishing a grub or fishing soft plastics on fluorocarbon, you're going to have a bit more stretch or, sorry, if you're fishing crankbaits, um, you know, fishing crankbaits uh, and retrieving them, fishing trebles, you're probably going to want to be on fluorocarbon rather than braid because you've got that little bit more stretch and you're not going to actually pull as many hooks on the bite and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And it all comes, like we were talking before the podcast about the spring of our hooks and stuff. All of this stuff comes in together and you learn from everything. So I think it's just a refreshing change to do something different. Yeah. Trout are the best. Like, what else do you want? <laughs> yeah, I know. They're off yeah. the surface, underneath. And they're hard. That's the thing. People are like, oh, trout are too easy. They're too predictable. It's like, gosh, I can't yeah. find a predictable yeah. trout like What's that. What's your secret? Yeah. <laughs> because if you can make trout, to a degree, you can make trout fishing as hard or as easy as you want. You can definitely, like, you can put the challenges in. You, Everyone's like, oh, trout fishing's too easy. And you go, well... You know, if you go at that time of year and you fish that water type, of course, because they're hungry and they want to eat a hopper and launch at this. Mm. But it's like if you want some challenging fishing, you know, you can go and Polaroid somewhere. Mm. You can do anything. So so is there a bit of a thirst for more knowledge in your trout fishing today? Like obviously you're accomplished. You kind of know every technique there is and you've refined it. Do you still no have way. that? I don't yeah. Really. So that's the yeah. thing, isn't it? Like you're still thirsty yeah, for more knowledge. So much. Every, you know, can, I can't wait to come back from the World Championships in Spain this year um, just because of just you'll learn so much there. Yeah. There'll be different ways to, you know, fish and present to fish there because of the situations you're forced into. And then you come back here and you go, hang on, that's that one spot on that river where I can never get a good potty position to present a fly like this. Over in Spain I did this and you go there and do that and then you catch a fish and you're like, Oh, that was good. And straight that's, to the memory bank. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think um I think that's a yeah, a big part of it. Like I've already started fishing uh I've already started tying my flies that I anticipate I'll be using for that water and I've already found like a couple of patterns that I'm like, that is amazing mm. here. Mm. Like that is really good. Like better than what I was using there. So you definitely you always pick up, you know things and Mm. you just get that little they're little victories you know so much fun Mm, yeah when um so well so do you find that you're still accessing your and and discovering and sort of sifting your way through a wealth of information and knowledge and things like that or do you you feel like you're just picking up the pearls now the ones that are coming Uh, along the one percenters that are making the difference at sort of 
you know, realistically, the, the top of most people's game and, and, and on the world stage. I think, you know, you're learning from everyone and anything yep. and anywhere. I got, um, I hope he's li- he listens to this because he'll love it. I have, I guided a guy called Paul Rowbottom from the ACT Fly Fishers. He very kindly sent me, a, posted me a book the other day um, that he had an excess copy of and it was like trout streams of, uh, you know, southeastern Australia. And I flicked it open and I looked at something and there was like a creek near me and I was just like, oh, I know that bridge. And then it explained, you know, a time of the year and something that happened there. And I'm just like, oh, this is a book written in the 90s. And I'm like, that is an absolute gem. Yeah. So I think you can learn from absolutely anyone and anything. And um, yeah, it's, you can, people always, you can learn from like we, fly fishing, we all kind of rate ourselves, <laughs> I think to a degree, maybe. But you can learn from someone who you perceive to be is not as talented as you mm-hmm. because they have a different process and a different way of going about things. Mm-hmm. So, like, I know sometimes I've seen um, one of my mates, Matt, on the river, I've seen him do something. I'm like, that was, what on earth are you using that for? And they come up and eat it and you go, oh, geez, that's, maybe I don't need to be fishing, you know, this light in this scenario. And you can, yeah, it. Something you to take you, away from. Yeah, you're relearning because mm. we all forget stuff. Mm. Like where mm. you're constantly reinforcing things, I think, is the thing from yeah. people all over the place. That's and an observation I've had for some time. You know, the self-proclaimed experts and the ones that have lost that thirst for new knowledge generally aren't the best fishermen on the river, are they? Like the, the guys that maintain that thirst, like Philip Weigel, for instance, you can, he can be chatting to a, a 16-year-old boy who's just caught his second trout on fly and he's still thirsty to find out how he caught it, yeah. you know, and wh- what was it about? Like, maybe I can learn something from this young fella. Totally. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Like, mm. anywhere, everywhere. And it's like, yeah, dudes like that have been going at it for years. Um, you know, there's just so much. Like, you can all... You, if you, you know, you bought one of Phil's books and you picked up something... From, you know, years ago and you go, oh, geez, he really likes, you know, fishing that fly in this scenario. You go, look, I use that fly in this scenario, but maybe I should think about fishing it here. Like, just if you bought a book and you learnt that, it's worth buying. Like, yeah. it's worth, like, it's, you can't measure, like we're saying, you can't measure, you know, your success off the numbers of fish you catch. It's, mm. like, it's a, it's, I don't know, it's so dynamic. There's just so much to piece together there. And, and so you mentioned earlier that you're sort of, international the international scene you were taking things from people from you know all around the world and people that you've met through the tournament scene yeah do you find that that you know it are the things that you're learning internationally are that is that something you know that you're really drawing on you you're sort of at this point the people that you're meeting are they fishing differently to you are they giving you tips and things that are just completely you know, um, I, I suppose you never see in Australia from or a different like perspective. That. You mean I think like it's a different, different perspective. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. They're yeah. looking at things from a different you know, perspective and different angle because you know yeah. their fish and their fisheries behave differently. They Completely. operate differently. They fish um, with different people. You yeah, know, like they might come to the same conclusion in a completely different little. Yeah, they click. Appro- they yeah. approach stuff from different angles, like their body positions on rivers, and you go, "Oh, geez, look, he's using that rod angle." And it's like little things like that apply to you know. Um, I always say to people, don't like just challenge things as well. Like on that topic of you know learning from other people, because uh, there's a few angles. There's one American angler in particular who uses some far out funky gear. And you go, I would never use that for that. But the way he positions his body and he angles and attacks fish from directly beneath them, it lends itself to that gear. So um, I find, yeah, just learning little pieces, bits and pieces like that mm-hmm. is super important. But even like, um, you know, we could we could draw a lot of off American anglers um, and even UK anglers 
who fish out of because their rivers are open all year round. So you know they have a lot more knowledge on fishing at shut down fish in rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we can draw off a lot of that for fishing. Like in Victoria, our season this year is going to go into June when um, Queen's birthday weekend. So we're going to have mm-hmm. a lot of cold late season fishing at shut down fish. And you know your how you fish at fish at that time of year is completely different to how we fish here. So you can definitely draw upon stuff over there. And um, yeah, it's flies are the easy thing to go back to. Mm. Because they're the they're almost tangible because they're like in your hand and you go hey this is a really good fly I learned from there but there's so many things like flies that you learn from people there yeah, yeah. cool that was you you've just touched on something that I actually wanted to bring up what do you have any pearls of wisdoms or one percenters for listeners or people like myself that are fishing on those days when the when the fish are shut down and and you are struggling and you're going oh you know geez like nothing's nothing seems to be working I I've tied on every fly and I've done everything that i feel like i I, i've i've been able to do like us yesterday yeah (laughs) like (laughs) us yesterday um is there anything that you um you know sort of comes to mind to you that you you know that you could rest on as as sort of you know an intermediate or amateur angler yeah uh, one thing i like and this is a, a simple one that's not like hey go buy a better rod or get some better flies um it's a really easy one and that's gears Having gears in your fishing is very important, I think. So let's say you're on a river and you're having a very tough day. The fishing's slow, it's cold. You're fishing, you're really burning through water. A lot of people, you know, chew through that water. They make a lot of cut. They don't make many casts in each spot and they're speeding up and they're just flying through it and they're not having success. Slowing down is probably going to be very important for you because mm-hmm. those fish are, like, just slowing it right down, making more casts in every spot. You know, just really, like, the more time you spend in a spot, the more time you allow something to happen as well Mm -hmm. like fish people forget that trout is his own agenda he's doing his own things there he's not you know spending his whole life waiting for your fly to come down like you might make a fantastic drift where he's sitting and he might be simultaneously eating something else so you need to give them time so if you're fishing too fast and you're you know a speedy angler slowing down on those tough days may be very important for you likewise if you're an angler on say a lake and it's tough and you're not you're fishing you know, you're slow, you're just really methodically working through this piece of water and you're not having any excess. Maybe you need to speed up and just cover a bit more water, find those aggressive fish. Mm-hmm. So I think simple changes like that is really important. Okay. Um, yeah, um, you can give me another one. I can throw yeah, more no, at you. No, I've lost no, the, but, but, I yeah, developing those different gears is something that must just come with experience, right? Like mm-hmm. if you've only – if you can't be a one-trick pony. But if no, yeah. And if, if the fish are slow, you should be slow as well. You're sort of trying to match those – as you're saying, individual fish and it's all yeah. It's almost just being a, being able to change up. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like if the fishing's slow, you need to slow down. Mm-hmm. It's just being able to change stuff. It could be, you know, changing the water type you're fishing. Um, you know, like if you're fishing, uh, let's say, you know, um, I don't. It could just be fishing a different type of water. Okay, go fish in the pools and in front of dry. Slow it right. Stop going to the head of it. We all love to go to the head of the run where the water tumbles in, and just race there. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's cold, the fish aren't going to be working that hard. They're not going to be sitting right up there because the valley's not there. They may be, you know, a little bit back in the pool, a little bit deeper. So little things like that, just adjusting your approach. People tend to go fly change, technique change, those things rather than decision-making change. Yep, okay. Body position, um, yeah, body position, um, like the gears, how long you spend on a piece of water is really, really important. And... 
uh, like on that, a great one. This is a question I've gotten heaps on my YouTube stuff because everyone's like, everyone accuses me of getting too close to the fish. They're like, oh, he's not casting. He's just fishing his leader. Why are you getting so close to the fish? And the simple answer, like you were saying, like as far as changing things is when I get to a river, the first thing I'm going to do is see how, cl- push the boundaries, see how close I can get to a fish. Mm-hmm. Like, because the closer you are, the easier it is for you. So, and if you start spooking them, yeah, okay, you got to back you off, back off. Up. Don't fall into the trap of just doing the one thing the whole time. You need to be conscious, like make those decisions consciously of going, okay, I mean, let's say you want to fish through quickly because you don't like standing in the one spot. You want to try and fish as fast as you can while still getting the fish to eat. If you're going so fast that you're not giving them the opportunity to eat the fly, you probably need to slow down that little bit. Yeah. So okay. those sort of inf- those sort of gears, yeah. Okay, yeah, interesting, interesting. Jeez, and I'm going to listen back to this podcast. I think this is yeah, no, probably be hours of dribble. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've no, got a question. Yeah. When you go overseas and fish for grayling, is it hard? We don't have them here. It's different, um, and it's different whether you go for fishing for Arctic grayling or you're fishing for European grayling. They're very, they're not very different, but they are different. Um, they sit in different water types, essentially. Um, I think if you fished for uh, if you fished in America and you've caught whitefish, um, you know they're similarish. Like they pin down to the bottom, they sit in the tailouts. Um, it's not terribly different. Like European grayling, you're going to want to fish smaller. You're going to want to fish finer tippet. Um, they're not as spooky. That's the weirdest thing. Yeah. They're like the anti. They just they don't spook. Like you can poke them with your rod, but damn, if you can get them to eat a fly, sometimes mm, that's yeah. the hard, the cool, challenging thing about grayling. So. Um, yeah, they're not like too bad. Are you going? Are you fishing? No, no, it's just curious. Yeah, they're fish we don't have here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, like whitefish, just like whitefish, that whole uh, like family. So like dace, chub, um, grayling, they're all yeah, they're all just slightly different and unique. Because um, chub uh, like count in international comps over yeah. there, and they're almost like a you know like a carp to yeah. Event. Like very different fish, yeah. and you know you you end up swinging traditional wet flies and stuff at them. Yeah. Um, you know, they can be quite spooky. They don't like the fly plopped on their head. Often you kind of lead them a bit or, you know, you give it, you swing and fish down to them. The takes are really soft as well. So, you know, having the swing, having that contact with your line on the swing is really important for hooking them as well. And they have super soft mouths, so you fish finer hooks so they go in more easily yep. with a soft take. So I think a lot of that little, yeah, yeah. just little quirky things, little like tiny little adjustments yeah. like um, for grayling. Grayling are like the best fish yeah, they're right. amazing. They're like yeah. my favorite freshwater species. Yeah, yeah cool. really. Mm. And they've got competitions based entirely on grayling. Yeah, or well, is are they? They they just make up a part of a. They like, make up a part of it. Yeah, like in Slovakia, uh, in twenty seventeen, um, you know, you'd have a like. I had one session. Actually, the session I won, I had like a couple of schools of grayling in my beat, and I fished at them and fished at them, and then they kind of shut down. And then you went to the other school and you fished at them and fished at them, and then they shut down. And then you go, okay, I'm going to try and catch a few chub to fill in some time here. I'll maybe, you know, throw a dry at this, like a rising fish over here. And then you go back and you nymph it, you're grailing again. So it's very kind of all over the place. Dynamic. Yeah, yeah. You can switch it up. Yeah, they're in different sort of water. Yeah. That is really cool. cool. It's really fun. It's like, but trout, yeah, it comes down. They're just like a trout, ultimately. They're just like a different trout. Yeah, I guess the fact that you can just tweak something fairly small and start catching a totally different species is... Mm. Kind of, yeah, all, cool. And all of like so many of our popular, you know, fly patterns over here are grayling patterns, like without us knowing it. Like a lot of the like pink tag nymphs that are in the shop, like greatest grayling fly ever, essentially. Same with like an F fly. Yeah. 
great grayling pattern. So even a Slovakian pattern, I think, originally. So, so they yeah. rise well? Amaz- yeah, amazingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they ha- eat at a different angle because their mouth's like under their chin. Yeah. So they eat differently. You, you often have to, in deep water, they often sit quite deep and you've got to lead them by quite a long way because they have to have time to come up. And it's just different. That is, yeah. It's really cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to like wait longer on the strike or anything. That's like when they eat it. They Some eat. people think that, but it's like everyone says that about trout. They're like, you got to, what is it? The God save the God queen. Save the queen yeah. this, with fish eating a dry, like a trout or anything, this, I always say to like my clients, the speed of the take dictates the speed of the strike. If they're up and down quickly, you got to hit them quickly. If they eat it slowly, you got to, you know, be slower on the, on the strike. So I don't think it's as simple as everyone says, yeah, you got to let grayling have it. It's like, yeah, but they all eat at a different speed, so mm. it's it's hard. Yeah, yeah. God save the queen. You know, some of my fishing buddies just say Andrew's a prick. <laughs> <laughs> That's their countdown for the strike. I only use that. Ah, one. Some good fishing friends here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do, do we want to keep going or like? We've covered a lot. We I have think people are going to need some time to digest this. I reckon. Yeah, but we'll definitely get Tom back for another one. Um, but Tom, I think, you know, the great thing about you is you are authentic. You know, I think mm. no one has sold more gear for us in this shop than you. And it's because of your authenticity. You know, like when you say that, or in your videos, for instance, you're using a Tiemco Flyker Chief. Now it doesn't matter that there's none globally and we're not going to have any for another 12 months, <laughs> but all of a sudden you've got a hundred people in the order book waiting for their Tiemco Flyker Chiefs. <laughs> but when you say something, people listen, mate. And I, you know, I think it's great. And, and obviously it's because you're such an authentic character and someone that's so generous with their knowledge. But um, mate, we really enjoyed having you here this evening. We appreciate it immensely and um, definitely hope to get you back again, mate. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. No, it's been great. Yeah. Come back with a different, uh, yeah, different angle. Just sure. keep.